This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society. And we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. It's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Not all. I've enjoyed your uh, many times on War Room, and maybe we'll touch on that before we get on to everything else. But obviously, people can find you at Rail Sam Faddis on Twitter, at AMD Magazine also. And I think Substack, certainly what I enjoy is amdmagazine.substack.com. Everything is in the description. I think that's where you put a lot of your longer pieces. So if people yes. enjoy the Twitter, they can jump on and look at the Substack. And of course, Sam, you are a retired CIA officer, served in Near East and South Asia, author, commentator, um, and of course, senior senior editor of AMD Magazine. And certainly for me, as maybe for many others, what often happens, people coming on Steve Banner's war room, it opens a window. Um, maybe we can just touch on that it's always fun to ask people how they ended up being on war room and they will jump on i think a lot of the threats the terror threats currently inside the u.s so um what about yourself how did you end up being on war room yeah i i don't uh i think I, my contact with with steve goes back to uh when he and jack maxi were still working together and um we got particularly deeply involved regarding the Hunter Biden laptop story, yeah. because when they got a hold of a copy of the hard drive, one of the first things they wanted to do was make sure that they weren't being played, that this was in fact something real. They weren't going to run with it. And, you know, uh, I mean, they were more than happy to run with it if it was real and authentic, which it is, but they wanted to do their homework first. So they called me in as an old, uh, CIA operator to take a look at this thing and say, hey, do you think this thing's real or is there anything to this accusation that it's Russian disinformation? And after about, I mean, I spent the whole night down, I showed up in DC one night and spent the whole night down in a townhouse in Capitol Hill with those guys going through it. But I can tell you that it took me about five minutes to be able to tell them it is impossible for somebody to have faked this thing. That's That's completely ludicrous. If you came to me, when I was operating and said, do this to somebody else, I would have said, no can do, man. I mean, I can I make up a fake laptop? Yeah. Will it stand more than about five minutes scrutiny from an adversary who knows what they're doing? No, it will not. It will be obvious for a million reasons. And we've obviously delved into that with Miranda Devine, right. Laptop from Hell, God Guard Ziegler on a number of times, and and as a huge, and you wonder why the media don't wake up to that fact, but um, yeah. that and and many many others. Um, but of course, your your background, CIA background, that intelligence side, um, and on your Substack, lots of really interesting articles, and I think. Uh, for me, it's the concern about the terror threat within the U.S. We talk a lot about what's happening externally, uh, but the, the really the big concern 
uh, I have looking across the water, and we have in the UK having open borders is the terror threat within here in the UK, uh, as you're concerned, over there in the States. And um, maybe look at the border, because one of your recent Substack post was the trade in asylum seekers, why the establishment won't cut off illegal immigration. And the issue of open border, I mean, it's the opposite of a purpose of government, isn't it? A per- government should be closing the borders, protecting the citizens. And this administration seems to want the opposite. So what are your thoughts as you look on that open border policy? Well, as you well know, uh, given your trade, you know, language can be either be used to illuminate or obfuscate. We spend a lot of time listening to this administration use language to obfuscate, to dance around, to to make to pretend. Um, let's just be clear: this administration's policy is open borders. That's the Biden administration's policy: is we don't have a border. So nobody in Congress changed the law. Nobody legislated that. The American people didn't decide that. These guys just basically decided without ever admitting so that they will not enforce the existing law. So if you show up at the border, you're processed. You're handed a notice to appear for a hearing, which may be five to 10 years in the future. And you're cut loose. Actually, you're probably transported onto your onward destination, like Chicago or New York. So, and once you have that hearing notice in hand, by the way, if anybody stops you, you just tell them you're waiting for your hearing. So it, in fact, is functions as a permit. In fact, the illegals refer to it as a permit. So that's that's our policy, and we don't. There's no magic database to check these people. We have no idea who they are. We have no idea if the documents they're carrying, if any, are real. So anybody and everybody can walk into the United States. So why? Well, I mean, ideologically, a lot of these people, frankly, don't believe we have a right to control our borders. But there's also just a lot of money here, right? I mean, there's a huge garment industry, as an example, in Southern California around Los Angeles. Actually, a large number of of clothes, a large amount of clothing that's made in the United States. It's all made by illegals. I mean, if you walked into a shop and there's 300 people in the room and you found one of them who actually had legal documentation to be in the United States, you'd probably die of shock. Everybody knows that. Uh, you go to Alabama, chicken processing plants, folks that stand on their feet for 10 or 12 hours a day and they gut and pluck chickens, not exactly pleasant work. I've done a little bit of it once upon a time. Okay, who does that? (laughs) Again, if there's 600 people in the plant and you found one that actually has permission to be in the United States and be working, you'd be stunned. So what we have, and I could go on, obviously, I mean, you get the point. There's a lot of folks here who are pretending like somehow they're welcoming the poor of the planet and doing something philanthropic. That's not what's happening. They're making a boatload of money. In the article that you referenced, we talked about how, for instance, in New York State, they actually run a state website where employers can go on the website and advertise jobs, and it's specifically marketed to illegals. Now, they don't use that terminology, illegals. But that's what it is. It is a state-run website to match up employers with folks who will 
Again, when it's all said and done, they will work off the books for less than minimum wage. And none of these guys are going to complain about workplace safety. You know, I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of sick. Here's the Democratic Party pushes this supposedly the party of the working man. This is a war on American working men and women. It's a, none of these pesky unions, man. We're going to deal with folks that are about one step above slaves. Yeah, and, and and I get that. And that was a conversation I had in the Brexit debate in the UK, talking to voters and you talk to small businesses and they wanted uh, cheap labor. They want a free moon to people. And I get the economic argument on that. But then you move over on to the security issue. And uh, just because you let someone in for to, they can cheap labor, uh, if you're not checking who that person is, then you have no idea who is in the country. And it it surprises me why I mean, you're on a scale well above what the UK is on. Um, but it surprises me why the, the media and politicians don't really uh, call this out for what it is, which is a, a massive security risk for the US. Uh, without question. I mean, first of all, people talk in terms of checking names against databases. Okay, so first of all, let's just assume that happens. What database? I mean, a database consists is only as good as the data that goes into it. The What's the premise there? We have a magic database with the names of all the members of Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah and Hamas in it. There is no such database. So the guy's name is the you know, John Smith, something generic, born in some, born in some village nobody ever heard of in Pakistan. Okay? You know what you're going to find? You're going to find there's no data in your laptop. Does that mean that he's good? It doesn't mean anything. That's, by the way, assuming he's actually telling you his real name. Hezbollah, as an example, Hezbollah has a longstanding relationship with Venezuela. They are very serious boys. I've worked against them all over the planet. They plan years and years in advance. They're very meticulous. They don't show up one day and say, let's blow something up. They, they flip a switch on an op that they've been working for five years. Prepositioned explosives, case targets, all this. They have a relationship with Venezuela. Venezuela gives them full sets of false identity documents, passport, driver's license, etc., backstopped by the Venezuelan government. Meaning if you ask the Venezuelans, is this guy Jose one of yours? They'll say yes, because they gave him the docs. It's part of their deal. Number one group of people coming out of Central and South America into the United States right now, Venezuelans. It, that is not me saying, obviously, that every Venezuelan walking into the United States is a terrorist. I'm just saying when you have a flood of people like that and you know you have this capability, it's the simplest thing in the world to insert into that stream guys who are operatives. And we have no capacity for detecting them. And we have caught them on U.S. soil before where they have been here for years and years and years, working targets, New York City, Washington, D.C., Chicago. So, yeah, there's a clock ticking out there someplace, isn't it? It's just, you know, I mean, it, it, when, when, when stuff starts to blow up, is there really anybody with a straight face is going to turn around and say, wow, that was unforeseeable, I'm shocked. Like, we're just waiting for it now. Well, all the, I've, I mean, your time working abroad, um, with the the CIA and you're dealing with 
countries and individuals and situations which you wouldn't expect to find at home. And I've talked to other people uh, working in the field uh, at different ops. And I think the, the assumption was, and I assume the assumption is that the intelligence services abroad for the US, that, you know, there is trust in what happens back home. There is trust in in the borders, in the systems, um, and you're doing what you do abroad because you know you got the backing of the U.S. But also, you know, there's protection there in the U.S. And that's not even touch on the military; it's just touching on uh, the institutions and the border. And um, if that's no longer there, then kind of you wonder what is the point of intelligence abroad whenever there's no kind of backstop there back in the U.S. Yeah, there there is no point. I mean, again, this is this is what I think people need to understand, and and they don't, and maybe on some level they don't want to, right? Because the enormity, first of all, is staggering and hard to get your head around, but also you kind of just don't want to face this reality because it's very unpleasant. We don't have a border in the United States functionally. I mean, we have guys that process illegals and then put them on buses and send them to Chicago. We've turned border patrol into welcome wagon, but we don't, we don't, our defenses are down. I mean, you're living in a house in a bad neighborhood and the doors are unlocked and the windows are open and nobody's paying attention. So is it hard to predict what will happen? It will not. Right now, look at what's happening in the Middle East. I mean, you could send intelligence message after intelligence message out of the Middle East from a CIA station saying uh, everybody and his brother is planning on blowing stuff up all across the United States. Nobody's going to react it. Nobody's going to do anything about it. They have politically decided to ignore it. And, they, you know, it, God willing, somehow miraculously, this will not happen, but I don't see how we will avoid it. People are going to die. We are going to get hit again. And people should keep in mind that when 9-11 happened, Al-Qaeda, just as an example, they never conceived of that as the end of anything, nor did they conceive of that as the worst they could do. So they have never, and many of the other groups, never given up their ambitions for biological, chemical, nuclear, radiological attacks. So as horrible as 9-11 was, what you could see would potentially be much, much worse than that. What do you think as someone who's working abroad on the field, uh, seeing obviously what's happened with um, not only Af- Afghanistan, uh, but then the th- you mentioned the threat of Iran not being neutralized and not being left faster and grow and continue uh, to be a threat. And I guess any, it's not... It is one way pointing the finger at, at the Democrats um, because of what has happened, uh, but maybe other administrations haven't maybe dealt with that threat either. Uh, does that make any sense, or is that on the ball? No, it makes no sense at all. And, and again, yeah, I'm not going to try to lay all of the issues here squarely and purely at the foot of the Biden administration. Not that they don't, not that they aren't working overtime <laughs> <laughs> to mess things up, but. But yeah, we've made mistakes in regard to Iran as an example for a really long time. I mean, look, I've worked with a lot of Iranians, Iranian patriots over the years who are fighting for freedom in their country. I got nothing but respect for the Iranian people, Persian culture, Persian history. The the boys that are in charge in Tehran, the IRGC and the Ayatollahs are psychos. 
I mean, they, they, they have an expressly apocalyptic view of history. They believe these are the end times, literally in the, the way somebody who's a true believer in the literal word of the Bible might believe these are the end times. They, that's a reality. That's not, <laughs> that's not a metaphor. These are the end times. The Mahdi, who they regard as an Islamic Superman prophet, is about to come back. And uh, there's going to be a giant fiery con- you know, end to the, to the world, and they emerge as the winners, and you're all either with them or you're gone. So that's the way they look at the world. Now, these guys have been on a course to acquire nuclear weapons for decades now. Uh, that's th- their nuclear program exists for one purpose for nuclear weapon. Everything else is garbage. Just dispense with the nonsense. We keep reading things like, you know, the l- latest I read was an assessment that's now seven months old that said, we think the Iranians are 12 days from having a nuke. Okay, so I'm not a math genius, but I'm pretty sure that if it's been seven months and you told me they were 12 days away, that by this point, you should assume they have a nuclear weapon. And anybody who thinks that our intelligence collection is so good that we will know for sure in advance that they're about to acquire it is living in dreamland. Not true. Nobody will know that. Even the Israelis who have a really robust... Basically, you live in a world right now where you could wake up tomorrow and realize not just that they just got the bomb, but they have had the bomb for some period of time. So, I mean, a nuclear Iran that can actually vaporize Tel Aviv? That's the end of peace in the Middle East. That's... You just set that whole region on fire. The Israelis will not live with that. What are we doing? We're shipping billions of dollars to the Ayatollahs. That's what we've been doing under this administration. We've been ransoming hostages. Um, look at look at the situation in Afghanistan. I mean, Biden wants everybody to forget about it because politically it's a disaster. All right, let's get down to the real implications. It's a terrorist super state. It's a safe haven for Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is at least as strong as they've ever been, and now they have a much more powerful, secure foundation. The Taliban is waging war to top and topple the government in Islamabad next door. Okay, maybe you don't care about the Pakistanis. They happen to have about 200 functional nuclear weapons plus the means to deliver them. So if Islamabad falls... That means all of a sudden Al-Qaeda and Taliban are one of the top nuclear powers on the planet. That's kind of a big deal. Somebody ought to be paying attention to that. We can't let that happen, yet we are doing nothing to stop it. I mean, tell, because one of the other articles was uh, was standby for another intelligence failure. I think it's the most recent one. Uh, Joe does nothing as terror threat here at home escalates. Um, and on that, you touch on what's happening in in Israel, and you touch on Iran. I mean, how does that affect? Because America has never been weaker militarily, and uh, from a completely civilian point of view, seems to never have been at a weaker place uh, in regards to intelligence. Um, And where does that leave America with what is currently happening um, in the Middle East? Well, it leaves us functionally blind, and I I think there are probably two sides to that coin. One is the part where you give warning to the policymakers, 
to the politicians and it doesn't happen to fit with their agenda, so they ignore you. We did a lot of this in the run-up to 9-11, which is not to say we had specific information on that plot, but it wasn't exactly a secret to anybody working the target that they're serious and they're coming for us. By the way, they already blew up two of our embassies, tried to take down the World Trade Center once before, and almost sank the USS Cole in Yemen. So for real, guys, they're coming. That didn't fit with... Bill Clinton's peace dividend agenda. And uh, that we're now at the end of times and it's every the kinder, gentler planet. And the Bush administration didn't seem particularly focused on it before, you know, before 9-11. So I did a lot of that. I was involved with a lot of that. And uh, as was my wife, who's also a retired agency officer, as were any number of our friends. So it's not just me whole bunch of guys over a whole bunch of years saying we better go take care of this bin laden guy before something really catastrophic happens and it's ignored and the second part is just a decrease in collection capability and we we, we absolutely do not have the collection capability we need anybody afghanistan is under the control of the taliban and they got billions of dollars worth of our gear and the international community, including the United States, keeps sending them money, calling it humanitarian funding. Anybody who thinks they're using that to buy baby formula is on drugs. So, And you've got every group in the world, including Al-Qaeda, back there with training camps and a completely safe platform from which to plan, train, and, and launch attacks. What a... I don't understand... Anybody who thinks we have any collection capability on the ground in Afghanistan at this point that's worth anything, again, is in dreamland. I mean, you can take pictures of it from space and you can listen to, you can surf the internet and intercept email messages. You know, it took us 10 years to find bin Laden because he didn't use the internet and he didn't use a cell phone. He recognized the capacity. He ran an entire worldwide outfit for 10 years after we took Afghanistan. Took us 10 years to find him. Why? Because he understood our technical capability and he knew we didn't have the sources we needed to find. So we don't have, you know, robust. We have essentially no capability in Afghanistan. We have no idea what they're plotting, what they're planning, how many attacks are being hatched over there. Um, And when I've talked to friends background intelligence it's all about assets and having people on the ground and that information um is it simply with the move the technological move is it that the focus is we can now do everything with technology and the the hard work on the ground is simply ignored is that maybe the focus of politicians the focus of politicians is also, unfortunately, the focus of too many people inside the intelligence community, right? I mean, one of the things the United States, just to keep, stick with us as an example, we do pretty well is allocate money, buy stuff, build buildings, fill them with people looking at flat screen computer monitors, doing PowerPoint presentations, generate a lot of this stuff, build a machine that flies around in space and sucks up signals. Okay. Now, espionage is not at all like that. Espionage is this weird, arcane, old art, really realistically probably hasn't changed for thousands of years meaningfully because it's all about human nature. So as long as people are people, it's going to be the same thing. You need these 
this very eclectic group of individuals, often drawn from a whole bunch of very disparate backgrounds, kind of people who in another lifetime would be stealing the crown jewels, who aren't very comfortable coloring within the lines all the time, but they have enough self-control to not go totally off the reservation, if you will. And in other words, they'll do it for a good cause. And then you got to train them really well. And then you got to season them really well. Like you got, I mean, when I showed up at my first field station, it was more or less an attitude like, yeah, you, you go make like 500 asset meetings. And then we might let you talk in the morning meeting when we all get together. Cause right now, you know so little you don't even know what you don't know you're that you're right and uh and then you got to trust instincts it's got to be a very flat nimble organization if i'm talking to a source in turkey and i got an opportunity to do something inside iran we need to exploit that opportunity really fast i don't mean like i should have carte blanche to just do whatever the hell i want but i just we got, we got to move. We got a window of opportunity. We, we got, let's go. I can't send that message back to headquarters and wait six months while they go through 27 levels of review and committees of people who've never been overseas discuss whether or not this is a good idea, right? Um, the really good organizations in history have had that capacity. I mean, one of, I've done a lot of study over the years of the American OSS in the Second World War, but also SOE, the Special Operations Executive, the British equivalent that was predates OSS and obviously was the template for OSS. Read the history of that, man. It's a, you know, a bunch of guys like Patrick Lay Fairmore that walked across Europe sleeping in barns before the war and spoke classical Greek and just this weird combination of things who the next thing you know, they're on Crete and they're dreaming up operations to kidnap Nazi generals. And they actually pull it off like two guys and a handful of Greeks do this. Good Lord. If you sent that proposal to Langley these days, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you would have no chance on earth of that thing ever being approved. They, they would come back with 9 million reasons why that won't work. And you'd get tired of trying to explain it to them. You'd just be, okay, whatever, too much trouble. Leave it alone. Um, I want to ask you about to the, to the domestic side. Um, it seems, again, as someone looking from the outside in, it seems the rule of the FBI is now no longer about catching real threats within the U.S. and is more focused on, I mean, whenever Moms for Liberty was declared an extremist organization and, and those who want to stand up for common sense and basic values of life and liberty and freedom, those are now the ones in the crosshairs. Um, I mean, how has that change happened? Is that just because it's easier to focus on uh, those type of people because they don't push back, they're not a threat? Uh, has there been an active decision to, to see um, those people standing up for American values as a threat, as opposed to um, others, maybe the, the Islamist type? Or uh, tell us how that change has happened and, and what that means for the fabric of the U.S. Well, first of all, it's catastrophic for the United States, right? I mean, intelligence agencies 
Intelligence agencies shouldn't be within 10 miles of American domestic politics. Uh, it's illegal, it's unconstitutional, it's immoral. And and they, they should never be, even even when they've got to deal with domestic things like the FBI, they should never, never should be partisan. Again, that's illegal and unconstitutional and so forth. Um, I think you have you have like two problems that are affecting both the FBI, the CIA, and a bunch of other agencies. One is bureaucratization, which kind of bureaucratic hardening of the arteries. The organizations go soft. You stop having guys at the top who made their bones running operations. Whether we're talking about the bureau or CIA, now you got guys who have played political games. And then we have politicization in the sense of American domestic politics. We have outfits that should not have come anywhere near this, that at least at the senior levels have become very politicized. I mean, the Moms with Liberty thing is a great example. I have a, where I live in the state of Pennsylvania, I have a lot of contact with Moms of Liberty because of other things that we do, my wife and I. You know, you're talking about an organization, the center of gravity is a 55 to 60 year old grandmother. And Moms for Liberty's primary focus is things like, why is this book filled with sexually explicit photos? drawings in an elementary school library accessible to my eight-year-old. Not trying to ban the book, burn the book, demonize the person who wrote it. It's just age inappropriate. It shouldn't be available to kids. It's not exactly incendiary, certainly not domestic violent extremism. So it's insane that the Bureau would label these guys as an organization like that, that as, as being a danger to anything, not a danger. They're people involved in a political process expressing actually what are really common sense things. So, um, hugely dangerous. I mean, you, you know, and, and uh, I think the problem is primarily at the senior levels, but I'm honest enough to say, and I've had this discussion with many old colleagues, you know, I'm still waiting for the day when somebody comes to an FBI SWAT team leader and says, I want you to go at five o'clock in the morning with 25 guys all gunned up and arrest this 75-year-old guy for praying silently outside an abortion clinic. I think it would be nice to see the day where the guy would say, that's a really interesting idea, man, but I'm not doing that. I'm not the Gestapo. I'm not your secret police. Uh, it's not happening. My guys aren't going. You want my badge? Take my badge. But I'm not doing that. You know, when they went to arrest Roger Stone, okay, on what, if you believe there was a crime, would have been at most a white-collar crime. So what's the procedure in the United States? You contact the guy's lawyer and you ask him to come down to the courthouse. He shows up. You charge him. And then typically he's released and he walks out the door. Happens all day, every day, all over America. That's the MO. Nobody sends a gunboat and an armored car and a squad of guys with machine guns to arrest a man who's, what, 80 years old and, by the way, stands about 5'3". And at that towers over his wife, who has heart trouble. And you're going to go show up at his doorstep at 4.35 o'clock in the morning? I mean, come on, that's... You are utilizing the law enforcement power of the United States government to intimidate political opponents. Straight up. Not okay. And I, and I guess that um, 
infiltration, that change of thinking, it, it that doesn't change just with an administration. It, it, something is is deeper than that, and there is no necessary quick fix for it. Well, I mean, let me uh, let me focus on the CIA, but you know, we could be talking about it, uh, several organizations in addition to the FBI. Is it fixable? Yeah, I think it's fixable. I mean, first you have, but you need somebody who understands the outfit. Because if you send somebody from the outside to CIA, they will be led around by the nose and played by the guys inside. And they will have no idea what's going on. But the key factor is really you have to have a president of the United States who says, go there, break as much China as you have to, fire as many people as you have to, get it back on track and get it back to work. Now, I've said this many times. I believe if you did that and you went to CIA as an example, and tossed out folks who have clearly crossed the line on political considerations as an example, and just said, we're going back to work, we're going back to business, we're doing the people's business. I think you'd actually honestly have people standing in the halls cheering. I think you, the rank and file would be, thank God. Like, you know, you don't go to CIA for the paycheck. I mean, you don't starve, but you don't get rich. And, and you make a tremendous number of sacrifices and you do a lot of interesting stuff, but you also live some places that are hard and you certainly put your family through a lot of hell along the way. So really people come there for a reason and because they, as hokey as it may sound, they believe in, in the mission and they can see when they're not being allowed to do the job. They can see when a guy's getting promoted that has never done anything, but he laughs at the boss's jokes. They're not stupid. They see all of them. Um, and tell me, some of the threat we talked about earlier, the Middle East, you've got that um, Islamic threat. You've got a completely different way of life and a, a different viewpoint on how things should end. But another article you wrote recently in the Substack was looking at China and that threat. Uh, Biden meets Xi talking for talking sake. And we've certainly had massive concerns here in the UK of that Chinese influence in our education system and much wider. Uh, you've probably had similar in education in, in the political system. Uh, that's another threat which is there internally. Um, and no one seems to want to deal with it. Uh, we've just had David Cameron coming back in the UK as the Foreign Secretary, one of the most pro-China political leaders uh, in a generation. Uh, you probably have the same. So tell us about that, that, that article of um, of Xi coming over and Biden being his lapdog, basically, being summoned to, what, to San Francisco. Um, what's your concern of the, the Chinese influence and where that can take America? Yeah, well, let me state up front. Well, you know, I was a case officer for the Central Intelligence Agency, which is what any normal person would refer to as a spy or a spook. CIA doesn't. Those terms are used differently at CIA. Anyway, what was my, my job? Well, my job is to do a whole bunch of stuff. But the guts of what you get paid to do as an ops officer, as a case officer, is recruit sources inside target organizations. So, in other words, my job to do to the enemy what they're trying to do to us. It is my job to get the Chinese intelligence officer to work for us, the Russian SVR guy to work for us, to get a guy inside Al-Qaeda to work for us. So when I say that, not like a hooray for me speech, but as a, when I'm talking about people being recruited and how this works, 
It's not because I read a book about it one time. It's because this is what I did for a very, very long time with, I think, some significant effect. What the Chinese do on an industrial scale is they engage in what's called elite capture, their term. That means they come in and they recruit, they gain control of, they buy, whatever verbiage resonates with you, influential people in target countries. So that's politicians, could be military officers, corporate leaders, whoever they think has power in that country and can further their interest, they buy them and they gain control over them. They don't do them a favor and then hope later they'll do them a favor. That's what diplomats do. They gain control over them. They stick there. They, you know, they push the buttons in your head, whatever it takes, man. They stroke your ego, feed you money, produce attractive young female agents, whatever floats your boat, whatever is the, whatever is the key that unlocks you. That's what they do. That's how spies work. Okay, we know that. There's no controversy about this. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's done worldwide on industrial scale. Not surprisingly, target number one for the Chinese Communist Party, Intel guys, would be the United States of America. They do this all over the United States. God knows how many guys in Congress they have turned. God knows how many corporate leaders. Um, look at Joe Biden. Right. I mean, again, let's let's stop beating around the bush and playing games. This is a guy who's taken. I think Miranda Devine's best estimate is at least thirty one million dollars flowed to the Bidens from China, from China, from individuals who are directly connected to Chinese intelligence. So let's just take the ambiguity out. Chinese spies funneled at least thirty one million dollars to the Bidens. They didn't give it to Hunter for his good looks or, you know, because of his, he's a great cocaine user. I mean, there's only one product the Bidens had to sell, and that was Joe. Yeah. The Chinese communists are a lot of things. They're not idiots, and they just don't throw money away. So we know all that money flowed to them, and we know it came from folks directly connected Chinese Communist Party and Chinese intel. There's only one question left to ask. What? Did they get and are they getting in return? You might hand a chunk of change to Hunter one time because he claimed he could do something. And then it turned out he couldn't produce. And you think, okay, nothing ventured, nothing gained. We, we lost the bucks, move on. You would not continue to hand millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to these guys unless something was coming back the other way. So when you put Xi and Joe in a room together and people seriously talk as if Joe is representing the interests of the United States of America, I'm just shaking my head. I'm like, really? Because he's sitting in a room with a guy that, as far as I can tell, bought him years ago. He owns the man. And if you really internalize that, the implications for American national security and the entire free world are terrifying. Because it doesn't matter how many carrier battle groups you have or nuclear weapons. Look, that, you know, I'm kind of a history nerd. Once upon a time, the British East India Company took over India. They fought a battle at Plessy, I believe, and they defeated a vastly superior Indian army. Now, taking nothing away from the British Army, who did a superb job. Number one reason they won the battle, because they bought off the commander of the Indian Army who sat on the sidelines with something like 80% of the Indian forces 
and watched while his master and the rest of them were destroyed. Like they just, you know, simple solution. We'll buy this guy off and they'll sit on their hands and watch. So, I mean, if the Chinese move on Taiwan tomorrow and you're counting on Joe Biden to be the guy that gives the order to the seventh fleet to save the day, good luck, man. That's um, what's your, just so we finish off, what is your uh, big concern with, with with the life you've led, with your experience uh, seeing so much and how foreign uh, agencies work, foreign governments work, that ongoing battle uh, to fight for, I guess, the freedom in, in the US. Um, what is What are your kind of big concern uh, when you look at the US and uh, what has happened because obviously a lot of what's happened has been enabled uh, politically but it's also been enabled uh, in the in the media in in many economically uh, that's been a way in for for China but what to you is probably your your major concern of where America currently is see here's the way I would sum it up I think since 1945. The American people have taken for granted the fact that the United States is the preeminent political, military, and economic power on the planet. They just, that's just sort of bedrock, and it's almost like a law of nature now. So things are good sometimes and less good other times. And occasionally we get dragged into a war, and then after a while, we get tired of the war and we go home. But we don't think we actually lost our status as the number one power. And even when we leave Afghanistan, we don't think, we don't really think of it as we got beat. We think of it as maybe we shouldn't have been there and we got tired of it and we went home. Nobody's dictating articles of surrender on a battleship like we did to the Japanese in 1945. And we sort of assume that, again, that that's, you know, US military is the most powerful, our economy is the biggest, yada, yada. There are no, of course, laws of physics that says that is true. And we've touched on some of the reasons, but we could go on probably all day talking about there's a lot of really catastrophic stuff happening around the planet between the Chinese, the possibility the Iranians are going to get nuclear weapons. Pakistan falls and all of a sudden the Taliban has 200 nuclear weapons. We Terror attacks inside the United States. You... You could actually, I mean, I hate this word because it gets overused, but you're actually beginning to talk about things that are existential when it comes to the United States. You know, you're actually, I've, I've said this to numerous people, you know, you could realize that the Chinese could move on Taiwan and the, a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier could go to the bottom of the Pacific and you realize you don't have one west of San Diego. And all of a sudden, right there, the status quo that has existed since 1945, where the Pacific is an American lake, ceased to exist, guys. But the Chinese aren't in San Francisco yet, but you are no longer, everybody in the entire, all of East Asia now lives with a new reality. Nope. The South Koreans, the Japanese, what are they going to do? Just fend for themselves? That kind of stuff can be hap- is, is already starting to happen all over the planet. And we're either facilitating it or just blissfully ignorant to it, but we're not doing anything to stop it. Um, what happens if the Iranians wake up? 
What happens if the Iranians detonate a nuclear weapon in the desert, desert and, demonst- and say we have 12 more? And guess what? We already moved half of them to places like Lebanon under the control of Hezbollah, to locations you don't know about and where you can't stop us from launching them. So you Israelis knock yourselves out bombing sites in Iran. We didn't tell you this until we had already taken steps. Now you live in a world where the Iranians can wink the state of Israel out of existence, literally, because Israel's a tiny place, right? Two or three nuclear weapons in Israel doesn't exist anymore. It is that danger. It's that like we're teetering on the edge of a cliff, and yet we're we're not don't seem to actually be doing anything about it. Well, Sam, I appreciate you coming on. I think it is so important for the public to understand the perilous situation uh, which we we do face. And I've thoroughly enjoyed your uh, your many times on War Room. So thank you so much for giving us your time today in sharing some of those insights. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofvoke.org. Thank you for listening.